1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysun, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, the Dallas Safari Club. Conservation, education and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, the calling is call made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now here's your host, Larry Weisund.
0: Welcome to DSC's Campfires. Been a long time coming. We started this podcast oh about two years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. And my thoughts along the way were to come up eventually. <clears throat> excuse me, with a title that kind of explained what we were and and kind of how we how we do things or how I did things and. You know, I spent a lot of my lifetime uh, either around a campfire or, to be honest with you, when I wasn't there wishing I were around a campfire. There's something special about a fire. It just kind of draws you to it. And I'll have to admit, we live in a house that has a a fireplace. and, And even during the summertime when it is ridiculously hot outside, I find myself kind of backing up to where uh, if there were fire there, I'd be warming my backside, quite frankly, just kind of drawn to those kind of places. And to me, in a hunting camp, there is no more special place than a campfire to sit around that fire either really early in the morning before it's time to go hunting and enjoying a a cup of really good cowboy coffee, meaning strong, black, and maybe a little bit of sweetener ended, or maybe not, or that evening after a successful hunt, coming back to sit around a campfire and to tell stories about what you saw that day and the things that you... Maybe some of the things that you learn because I'm one of those that who loves to learn every time I go hunting every day I spend a field seems like i'm I'm learning something I'm learning something about the wildlife I'm learning something about the plants, about the habitat, about the weather, how all these things interact and You know, a lot of times I even learn a little bit about myself as well, too, as to how I dealt with a situation that I was confronted with during the day, whether it's from a wildlife perspective, from a terrain perspective, or, you know, maybe having run into somebody and and, uh, or sat there and had an opportunity to watch somebody else hunt and go, you know what, that's really a pretty good idea. I'm going to try that come the future. So, Campfires is the new title of the podcast. I feel so very fortunate for that. The uh the logo, if you will, too has changed and had Miss Stephanie Murphy, uh, who is an absolutely fantastic design artist, but Uh, miss stephanie also does my pod uh, not not only the podcast logo but she also does the uh facebook and instagram things that i do or is a great contributor thereof and makes sure that i've got posts occasionally although i'm not as active on social media as once i was and uh, she does just an absolutely fantastic job and i just really need to shout out to her to say thank you for an absolutely fantastic logo it was all i wanted and a whole lot more and i mean that in the most respectful and most appreciative manner we're into springtime a time when it's uh, maybe a good time to go look for shit antlers we've talked about that a little bit in the past we're into uh the middle latter part of march now and the bucks even in south texas are starting to lose their antlers a lot of times we in south texas don't lose our bucks don't lose their antlers until about the first or second week of April but I think because of the hard freeze that we had and some changes along the uh, the ways of uh, available nutrition in a lot of areas maybe a little bit of cold stress seemed like the bucks have been losing their antlers a little bit earlier this time or this year than than they normally do so you know, a great time to get out and look for shit antlers right now and and, kind of evaluate maybe where you want to hunt in the future. We talked a little bit about spring or late winter scouting. I I do a fair amount of that on my own property. And if there's a way to do that on properties that I'm going to get to hunt, I try to do the same thing there. Locate rubs, locate scrapes. If I can find a shit antler, so very often in years past, on the ranches that I managed as a wildlife biologist, particularly in South Texas and parts of the Texas Hill Country, North Texas, and even up in the Midwest and such states as uh, Kentucky and and over into Iowa, uh, so very often we ended up taking extremely big, old, mature bucks. Quite often, very very close to where we found those shed antlers, so to me they're a great key and a great place to start. I've, I've been so very fortunate to have taken some really outstanding bucks, or be responsible for somebody else taking some really uh, huge bucks. So very often we've done that within a hundred yards or less where we found the sheds. So those are an important key as we start moving into thinking about where we're going to hunt come this fall, particularly in terms of whitetail deer. Now mule deer outside of the desert mule deer that really doesn't do a whole lot of movement in terms of uh, migrating to a new area and, and returning home. You know, with, with mule deer, just because you find a lot of mule deer sheds, it doesn't mean that's where you're going to find them come this fall, because that's where they wintered. Mule deer have a tendency to, to spend most of their year in a certain area, and then when the wintertime comes, they'll migrate. And some of them will migrate as much as you know 300 miles some of them only about 50 or so but uh, particularly the uh, rocky mountain mule deer has a tendency to to really move because he has to go to where there's food and traditionally where there's been food and some of the problems we faced with mule deer in particular is the fact that because of housing developments these areas are maybe roads or just human encroachment in, in a lot of different ways kind of form a barrier for these mule deer to get through, to get to where they really need to go to spend the winter. So organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation, of which I'm a life member and a great supporter of, uh, spend a lot of time trying to find ways to mitigate these these problems, to create travel quarters, if you will, for the mule deer. I used to take care of a place up in northern Colorado, right in the very northwest corner above Dinosaur National Monument, where the Yampa River and Little Snake came together. And we had some mule deer that lived there full time, but we had a lot of mule deer that came out of the Red Desert up above us in Wyoming that would winter there. And when those snows got heavy, in the northern part of, or the central lower part, I guess I should say, of Wyoming, those deer would stream through and into that ranch, going into that area with the Dinosaur National Monument area there on the below it in the the river bottoms. By literally the hundreds, I've seen huge concentrations of mule deer come through there years ago, and I'm I'm sure probably some of that same is happening these days, and. We'd find some really big mule deer shed antlers and unfortunately when we were hunting, generally they were up on the Red Desert or in the mountains of of Wyoming somewhere and then come down to our area, our ranch country that we had there just north of of the Dinosaur National Monument area to spend the winter. So just because we found those sheds didn't mean they were going to be there. But whitetail, you know, that's a totally different story really wanted to talk this time a little bit about spring turkey hunting now uh, i'm one of those who years ago spent a lot of time spring turkey hunting matter of fact i'm i I got several of the spring turkey season that started in texas kind of in the north northern part of the state the north central part of the state we had one turkey season going on kind of in the texas hill country and we had lots of turkeys there and like around abilene and coleman as a matter of fact in coleman county just south of abilene texas we used to count winter roost where these birds would come into the colorado river bottom and those trees primarily pecan trees would be bare leaves and and when those turkeys came in to roost every night it looked like those trees had all leafed out again on one stretch of river there we would set up to where each ball just could cover a certain area and and we would count literally individually the birds that came in and i remember several times when when we got back to the pickup that night and started adding up numbers we were approaching twenty, thirty thousand turkeys that were roosting in just that stretch of the colorado river there in coleman county now i get tickled sometimes when people talk about the great amounts of wild turkeys they have well i can tell you at one time and i suspect they're still there that area had probably about as many turkeys as a lot of states do individually Got that season started back in the, oh, probably about 77, somewhere along and through there, 76, and uh, got it started because a lot of the landowners I was dealing with up there told me they would like to have a spring turkey season. The turkeys were important to them as as white-tailed deer were, and for the most part, they'd only been hunted, or for the only part, legally, I should say, they were only hunted during the fall, which was, uh, we had a spring turkey season up there that coincided with the regular white-tailed deer season. Had no spring turkey seasons in that part of the country, that part of the state at the time. But uh, through the grace of those landowners, I convinced the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department to open turkey seasons in some of those counties. And that first year, I had an opportunity to hunt on on the McGahey Ranch, which was kind of halfway between Abilene and San Angelo, Texas great turkey population, got out there that first morning and uh, way before daylight, and I kind of knew where some of these birds were roosting in some of these canyons. And in Texas, you could shoot at that time, uh, and still can to a great extent, uh, turkeys during the springtime with both shotguns and rifles. And i had uh, shot a few birds with rifles during the fall and really didn't have what I considered a turkey shotgun. So I went out and I bought a, a, an old Savage I think it was a model 24 or a 42. I remember there were twos and fours involved in this because it was a 22 mag over under with a 20 gauge shotgun. And that was my turkey gun. And back then, I mean, even in outdoor life, there were articles written about hunting spring turkeys with rifles. Uh, Byron Dalrymple was a writer of the time and did some of the first early writing about uh, hunting spring turkeys in the Texas Hill Country. and his favorite turkey gun was a, a a 222 now what he would do with it is rather than point the projectile so that the pointed point was first going out the barrel he turned that bullet around when he hand loaded so that the when the bullet came out he was essentially shooting with the backside of that bullet and and uh like i said there were several articles written about hunting that way so that first morning, that's the rifle or shotgun I had, if you will, a twenty two mag over a 20-gauge shotgun, and I got out there and started calling, and I'd, I'd been practicing calling with a box call that a friend of mine had given me. I don't even think it had a, I don't think it was a brand name of any kind. I think it was just, as I recall, just a, a, a box call that somebody had put together, and I played around with it a little bit, and got to where I thought I could be fairly proficient, Set up to where I could watch this little opening right next to the, this creek bottom. Now, this creek bottom was a roost, but it was also most of those roo- birds roosted in the bottoms of the little canyons just to the south of it because they could pitch off and, and fly into the top of those trees rather than flying up to the trees, I guess. I started working that call, and and immediately, now I waited until they about time the birds were going to leave the roost, and I knew they kind of wanted to come into that creek bottom because that's where they generally strutted and all those kind of things had kind of what some bird biologists would call a lek, where they do their strutting, and hit that call with a few yelps, and almost immediately, I mean, there was a gobbler answering, and then there was another one, and another one, and kept working that call very sparingly. I'd, I'd spend some time in the southeast up to that point with uh, uh, a friend who was a pretty serious turkey hunter. And one of the things that he had told me, he said, Larry, he said, way too many people call too much. He said, you're better off calling less than you are calling more. So I'd do a Yelper uh, on that box call and we told her to grab a piece of chalk and kind of chalk that paddle again a little bit to make sure it made the right sound and hit it a couple more times then just shut up i could hear the gobblers coming because you could hear them gobbling a little bit closer a little bit closer a little bit closer finally they were probably about 40 50 yards away but i still couldn't see them and it sounded like there were three different birds coming in and i hit that call just a couple more times and laid it down and. And uh, got my gun all propped up on my knee and waited. And sure enough, here comes a gobbler in and another gobbler. And, and all three of them are big, mature birds. No no question about it. Their beards were long. Their their bodies were huge. Their, the sun had come up, and the sun was kind of shining through the leaves. And and uh, whenever that sun hit those feathers, you talk about a flaming gobbler. Man, the iridescence was unbeautifully believable got set up and and uh and then i could hear him go <laughs> i could hear him out there spitting and drumming and man they were putting on a show and finally one of them walked out to where i could really see him really well and he started coming toward me and i waited just a second until he was probably about 12 14 steps away and and when he did i shot him with that 20 gauge barrel on the uh on that savage over-under uh, shotgun rifle combination, and he bowled over, and and uh, I had noticed right before I shot, I thought I saw a second beard on this bird. It looked like he might have two beards, so that was one of the reasons I was really thrilled when he came toward me and the one I picked out. And so, man, as soon as I that gobbler went down, I, I raced over there because a friend of mine, Jay Wayne Fears, he was a Substantial turkey hunter, did a lot of turkey hunting. I knew Wayne by reputation. Later, he and I became absolutely great friends, and hunted together a bunch for turkeys and a bunch of other things. But I'd heard a statement, fears it made years ago, that said there have been more turkeys killed by a size 12 boot than there have been by a size 12 gauge shotgun. Meaning that a lot of times years ago, the, those birds get hit and go down, and you ran to them in a hurry and stomp that head to make sure that that bird didn't get back up. Well, I ran to that bird and I started to stomp his head with my size thirteens and and uh, thought the better of it because I really didn't want to destroy the beauty of this bird and I grabbed a hold of him. Of course, he's flopping up a little bit, storm a little bit, and nearly got hooked by the spurs that which were well over an inch long. And I kind of held him up a little bit and looked at him and lo and behold, he had he had three beards. There was a a twelve inch, a ten inch, and a nine inch beard that this first gobbler that I ever shot in the spring that he possessed I mean an unbelievable bird in his own his own respect if you will I guessed his weight probably at about 18 to, to 20 pounds a, a really that which is really big for a gobbler in that area big gobblers there anywhere from about 12 to 16 17 pounds but uh This gobbler was absolutely beautiful. I was so thrilled that I had taken finally a a spring turkey. I'd read about it. I talked to hunters, just had never had the opportunity to do so, and what made it even more special is the fact that I had helped get that season started in those counties up there, and and, uh, gosh, even thinking about it now, I can remember every little detail about that bird coming in with him spitting and drumming and, and putting on a show, and oh my gosh, those other two birds when I shot, and they just kind of they started to run away and and uh, I had to call a couple more times just to see what they're going to do and sure enough they stopped and had I wanted to I could have easily shot one of those two birds as well too but I knew I had the one down and I was already starting to run to that one uh, after <laughs> after I'd made those calls you know it's, it's it's one of those things that as I was thinking about that uh i did i shot that bird and i started to get up and run and and saw those other two kind of take off a little bit and they stopped and hit the call and they came back in and right after that i I immediately ran over and and checked make sure my bird was down and it was that point that i picked it up like i said i thought maybe it had two beards and and uh when i really got to them had the three beards over the years i've had the opportunity to hunt turkeys of a, a lot of different places. Of course, growing up in Texas, living in Texas as a wildlife biologist and taking care of a bunch of different ranches in Texas, a lot of those properties had turkeys on them. And we did what we could to try to, to increase those turkey populations. Now, that meant proper grazing. That meant some predator control for to prevent those eggs from being eaten by coons. And, and we shot some bobcats and coyotes and and those sort of things, skunks. Whenever we had the opportunity in those areas, but we also, in those years, we we tried to plant different things that would come on as part of food plots for whitetail deer. A lot of times, we we planted things like milo and or maize, if you will, and larger seeded uh, uh, larger seeded uh, plants that we could put out there that the deer might eat, but also that the turkeys would eat. We tried chufas a couple of times, and it and, uh, really didn't work all that well in that part of the country. But uh, and then during the fall, we'd plant a little bit of corn and some other things that we thought would be worthwhile for the turkeys. We also set up really good grazing practices, and then to around some of the roost during the during the winter time and, uh, and going into the spring. We would go into those areas and clear areas off the roost where that bird could fly down into to where it didn't have to fly down into a bunch of tall grass and all that kind of thing because in the areas that i dealt with years ago we had a tremendous bobcat population and and the bobcats were very prevalent anytime you found any substantial turkey roost Particularly during the winter time, the birds in that area that I really started hunting in, we had both spring ranges and fall ranges, fall winter ranges. During the spring, those turkeys would start hidden out into the hillsides and into the, the wide opener country to to uh, nest and, and raise their young during the winter time those birds would come and traditionally roost in basically the same trees year after year after year in great numbers matter of fact there are some of those roosts that i worked as a biologist to counter just to look for presence of turkeys and there'd be three to four feet of turkey dropping stacked up underneath some of those trees to tell you that they had been there for a considerable amount of time over the years so it, it was one of those things, too. Some of the country that I worked had was really good as, as, as for spring turkey hunting because that's when the birds were there. They were away from some of those traditional winter roosts. And then I had a bunch of the ranches I worked that were had absolutely fantastic winter roosts where you'd find the gobblers pretty much in one bunch, and you'd find the hens and maybe some of the jakes or some of the young of the year in, in another group. And they would essentially roost in different areas uh, or, or different portions of the, of the creek or river. As you got into the springtime, those those two kind of integrated, and a lot of times you'd have both gobblers and hens on basically the same roost, the same tree. During those years back here too, we saw a tremendous increase in, in turkey populations hitting west into Texas. Uh, that time, we were doing a lot of turkey trapping, and Texas Parks and Wildlife Department was trading turkeys for all kinds of different species that they needed, everything from fisheries to birds to to big game animals to reintroduce into different parts of Texas. But uh, one of the things that we noticed for years, a lot of the really country out in the kind of plains country, if you will, Heading out to the Texas-Pecos country, out west of San Angelo, down below Big Spring and those areas, we, when, once they started putting in the big power lines, and not talking about the windmills we have these days, thank God, that uh, I don't know what happened there with the turkeys, but uh, they started putting large electrical transmission lines that extended pretty much all the way to El Paso. As those transmission lines moved west, interestingly, turkeys moved west as well, too, because for the first time, turkeys had what you might consider a legitimate place to roost. Most of the trees out that way may be 8, 10, 12 feet tall at the very most, even in the creek bottoms. And there really isn't a whole lot of protection there from from all kinds of predators at at that height of, of roosting. So when we started putting in those transmission lines, they started sitting on the towers, and occasionally you'd even see them uh, roosting up on the wires, up on, on in between the span of, of the towers. But it greatly, greatly increased the the movement of wild turkeys into the western part of the state of Texas. When it came to turkey hunting, I was I was fortunate, you know, living in Texas, and I say you know because you know that I do live in Texas. I was fortunate in that we had a lot of red-rand turkeys and a lot of places where we could hunt them. Wasn't the fact that I get tickled sometimes because I've always been hearing from years ago, even, oh, you guys in Texas, you got such easy birds to call. It's There's nothing to it. It's not even as much not fun as it is. And a lot of times these were guys who were hunting from the eastern part of the country, from, say, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, uh carolinas that part of, of the of the uh, uh of the southeast and there they've been traditionally hunting turkeys during the springtime for a long long time and they did have decent turkey populations but by compared to what we had in texas very very small turkey populations and uh so those guys that come west and, and they come hunt with us and and you know they go i oh, ain't nothing to call these Texas turkeys, any idiot can do it. Don't even you could probably do it with a mouth. You could bring any kid in here and he can call up turkeys all day long. I kind of smiled a little bit, and you know the the beauty of it was is that we had a lot of turkeys. Now it didn't mean that they were any less intelligent, if you will, because there were turkeys no different from what the eastern birds were. Maybe they didn't, maybe they hadn't had as much springtime hunting pressure as the eastern birds have had in the past but uh, these texas birds were pretty darn smart in themselves a lot of times these guys would come down and i mean they wanted to call continually they just they wanted it a lot of these guys were world champion callers from uh, all the different turkey contests and i have to admit they sounded really good and, and really interesting but they didn't sound all that interesting to, to our Texas birds uh, because maybe it's the fact that we don't quite talk as much here in Texas, and when we say something it, it means something. And in other places there's a lot of talk that goes on and sometimes it doesn't really mean a whole lot, but uh, these guys come in and they wanted to impress the birds with their with their calling abilities and yes, they were extremely good callers, but a lot of times these Texas turkeys, they were not all that impressed with, with, uh, all the different sounds and everything that these guys would try to throw at them. And, and next thing you know, they would start coming in and then they start drifting off. They just, just, it just didn't seem right because our Texas turkeys were not that vocal as what some of the callers were. And, and uh, particularly some of those older gobblers. You might call up a Jake and occasionally a two-year-old, but if you got into that three-year-old class where somebody's really looking for a long beard and, and looking for uh, a big spurs, that's, that's the age class you want to get into. And, you know, they'd call up some Jakes and two-year-olds, and those older birds would just kind of act like they didn't even exist no matter what they tried to throw at them. And, and to me, that was always really kind of a, a cool deal. Finally, I'd I'd get there and I said, okay, guys, tone down your calling, you know, call and then be quiet. Let that bird come to you more than anything else. Uh, you're you're scaring them away with all your calling. Some of the guys would listen to me and some of them wouldn't. Those that listened, guess what? They'd end up hanging a big old long beard by the spur off of one of the mesquite trees down south or here in the Texas hill country and, and uh, takes some birds. Those that continually called, had a very difficult time in trying to call up the birds that we had here. Now, the beauty of Texas is, is that the birds are not any easier to call, but they're more of them to call to. And the more that you call the more, if you mess up on one of them, you know, it's not really a whole big, big deal because if you're on a sizable property, I just move over a little way and, and start calling again. In the southeast, when I've hunted there traditionally, it was the getting as close to the roost as you could and trying to call that bird off the roost. And I've done that in, in several different of those southeastern states successfully and unsuccessfully in the Midwest. And one thing I learned about our Texas birds, and to a great extent, some of the Miriams that I hunted up in the northern port of New Mexico, those birds there, like our birds here in Texas, particularly in the southern and western half of the state even the northern part of the state they roost in the tallest trees around and if you think you can slip in before daylight and not be seen by those turkeys that are sitting up in the tallest spot around uh you're kind of fooling yourself because when you if you try to slip in on those situations where that bird's sitting up there and and uh you know, and you, and you set up and for last, you get them to gobble on the roost and then you get him coming off the roost. You hear him flying off the roost and you think you're going to call him. Most chances are you're not going to call that bird to you unless there's a specific reason why he's wanting to go in the direction that you're going. That, that bird's already seen you walk in in the dark. You know, he knows where you are. And, uh, so to, i learned the hard way about that as well too on trying to call in birds from the roost i finally figured out it was a not necessarily an impossibility it was fun to listen to them gobble on the roost and try to get them to call but the success of calling a bird to you in that situation particularly in the in the western part of of turkey country is uh, is not something that's very easily done You know, just imagine you being a a gobbler and you're sitting up in a tall tree, the tallest thing around, and you can see everything that's on the ground around you and you're already thinking about where you want to go. You know where the hens are and where you want to roost. And, uh, excuse me just a second, let me shut that off first. And uh, you have to, uh, you can see everything around you you're gonna see something coming in. You may not know that it's a person, but you know it's something that's not supposed to be there. So there's, you're not gonna fly that direction if you're not sure about what's going on. To me, when it came to turkey hunting, regardless of whether I've hunted in the southeast or the the west and even a little bit in Mexico and and Texas, Oklahoma, I mean, I've hunted lots of the turkey states out west and also east and, and to some extent, even a little bit north. One of the things is, is that I've always found one of the best times to call turkeys is about nine o'clock, from about nine to about noon. I, I've learned that those birds, that when they're on the roost, they've already decided where they're gonna go. And if you happen to be in that direction of where they wanna go, you may call one up. But generally, it always seems like when you're trying to hunt a roost, they're gonna pitch off and try to fly in the opposite direction of where you're that roost where you expect that bird to come so to me i found that yes i'm going to go hunting in the early in the morning and i'm going to listen to the birds and i'm going to try to determine which way they go and I may do a little calling just to just for the heck of it not totally expecting to call a bird in but uh it's it's one of those things to where I want to know where they're kind, of, which direction they're kind of headed. Well, then about 9 o'clock, by that time, they have visited all the hens that they heard during the night or watched go to roost, and they know where those hens are, and they're going to visit those hens. And if those hens are not showing a whole lot of interest in, in, in the gobblers in terms of mating, uh, they're going to go on to prowl. They're going to start looking, and that's when I found that you can call turkeys better than any other time now uh i've called it lots and lots of birds for myself and also for friends primarily that uh in that nine to about 11 o'clock because like i say those birds are on the prowl they're looking uh they're now looking for new hens that might have moved into the area that they missed so they have a tendency more to come to you by the true nature of, of the turkey gobbler In so many instances, it's the hen that comes to the gobbler rather than the gobbler going to the hen. So, you're trying to do something a little bit of contra there. That's really one of the reasons why it works better, as far as I'm concerned, to call turkeys well into the morning because uh, now they don't know for sure where those hens are and they're going to have to go looking for them. So, they will come to the hen. Now, if I do get a gobbler that I'm calling and he just is hanging up and hanging up and and just not making any move. And I give them a lot of time from the time I last hear that bird, I'll stay in an area at least 30, 40 minutes before moving. Because when I've made that call, that gobbler knows where that, where that hen is. And, uh, he's, he may know exactly where she is. So he'll mess around trying to get her to come to him. And if she doesn't come to him, that's kind of, you know, I'll just kind of imagine that that you're, you're in a situation, you're a gobbler, and this hen's not coming to you, and then all of a sudden that hen starts drifting away, what are you going to do? Well, chances are you're going to then go to the hen. So if I get one of those gobblers that hangs up and just doesn't come and just doesn't come, and and I've given him plenty of time because a lot of times they'll come in very silently that last little bit and not gobbling until you can see them strutting or spitting and, and drumming, if that doesn't happen, I'll start slowly walking away. And as I walk away, I call and I make sure that regardless what call I've got, whether it's a slate call or a box call, and occasionally using a, a diaphragm or, or even some other call, but I really like the slate, personally, slate and, and a box calls more than anything else. And uh, I'll just start moving away and uh, stop a little bit, and then move away and stop a little bit, call, move away a little bit, stop, and then I'll walk back to where I may call the the second to last time and set up. And very often that gobbler will come by because he's trying, he's finally decided this hen is definitely not going to come to him. She's walking away. He's going to have to go look to see what she is. And, and you know, she might be interested in, in kind of a courtship kind of thing. So to me, the, the challenge of, of of turkey hunting comes in that way from trying to how smart some of these old gobblers that have been around a while jakes are fun to call up they come in like crazy two-year-old birds respond very well but once they get past that two-year-old stage of course a lot of turkeys never get into those older age classes even in an unhunted situation but uh occasionally you'll have some of them that do and those birds can if they're in an area where they're not rubbing their beards as they're dragging them on the ground because i've seen some of those birds that are like that that pretty much just about drag their their beard all the way to what would have been maybe a nine ten inch beard to where it's about a six inch beard because of the, the rough ground that they're on and as they're trying to pick up different things uh, particularly insects and seeds um over the years, I've had an opportunity to hunt some really big birds in terms of uh, both body weight up northern part of Missouri. I used to go up there with uh, Mr. Kevin Howard when Kevin was with an ammo company, and every year Kevin and I would hunt northern Missouri, a state that he's from, and then we would hunt. Uh, also, uh, New Mexico and Texas, and occasionally other states. This is back when I was on staff with, with Shooting Times Magazine, and as a, as a hunting editor for that particular publication, and a bunch of others as well too. So, got the opportunity to hunt with with Kevin, and some of those places we hunted. There were a lot of birds that had some very long, bushy beards, and then there were some that we hunted in areas where it was very rocky to where they had a tendency to, to kind of grind off or broom off, if you will, the beards, so they weren't quite as long. There were several birds, though, that I had an opportunity to hunt and, and finally was able to to take one of those birds that had a little bit over a 13 inch beard. This, this bird I knew was at least three years of age. Uh, he, he lived on one of the ranches that I hunted and one of the ranches that I managed. And I was fortunate really to be only one of two Turkey hunters that hunted there during the springtime and finally was able to get this old bird to come in and, and get a shot at him. One of my favorite birds, however, I wrote about in, uh, in a book called trailing, I'm sorry, a uh, pair Flat Philosophy" is by, uh, Safari press. This was done back in, oh, 1995. I got a call one morning from the Texas parks and Wildlife department saying they're doing a, a, a mini series called lonesome dove. It's, uh, and a company called hat Creek is the one that's in terms. I mean, is in charge of procurement. And one of the things that, uh, uh, they need is a wild turkey and we'll give you permission to go out and get a wild turkey now here's a phone number call this guy so i called the guy that's in charge of of hat creek and uh he and i talked for a while and he said i I need a wild gobbler he said i need it alive and i thought oh my goodness i need it alive there's no way to drop net i says well when do you need this bird by and he says well we're going to film this scene of uh, sending the guy out to go kill a turkey, it's going to look like Kansas or the plains. And he said, "We're going to do it right around just just south of Buda, Texas, on uh, some of that grassy country down there." He said, "Do you, do you think he can do that?" And I said, "Absolutely. I, I'll, I'll I'll do my best." You know, I said, "It's all I can promise." Well, we had two big old birds that roosted in an oak tree there on the on the, one of the ranches I took care of, and they roosted there every night. And had for the last couple years, and and even during the springtime, that's pretty much where they roosted. So, big old oak tree. I went in there and and built a blind that was basically using Spanish moss and a few other things, and on the limb that they always sat on, and they basically sat on the same limb. So I built this blind over a series of days so that they got used to it and then moved it out a little bit farther on the limb and did it very, very gradually over about a three week period so that uh, my thoughts were is I'm gonna sit up in that blind and when that bird comes up, that big gobbler comes up that I started calling Jubal. Don't ask me why I became Jubal, but Jubal just seemed to be the proper name for this particular bird, this old gobbler. And uh, so I built this blind, and, and if you've ever caught chickens or turkeys or anything, they, we use occasionally a, 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 a stout wire that's got kind of a J-hook attached to, to a, a, a stick that's got some length to it so you can reach out there and catch them. And you catch them right above the, 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 bottom, the bottom of the foot, just right above the foot, what we would consider maybe the ankle between the foot and the, the spurs. So the day before the... Uh, day that they needed this wild bird live bird on the, on for the cameras for Lonesome Dove. I sat and crawled in that tree about an hour before dark knowing that those birds would probably fly into that tree just about dark and I hoped and prayed and everything else I could do that that bird those two gobblers would come in. So sure enough, thank God about, oh my goodness, maybe about uh oh, the sun had gone just gone down and here came two birds including the one that i'd called had a big old set of spurs and about a 10 11 inch beard and just an absolutely gorgeous mature tom he flew up and lo and behold he flew up within about four feet of where i four or five feet of where i had the blind set up and i sat there almost scared to breathe you know not one any movement of any kind any sound because if i knew i did this bird would pitch down or he pitch farther up at the end of the tree and i'd be at a total loss at that point i waited until it got really really dark about an hour two hours or so after the sun went down and it became officially dark thankfully we had the slightest bit of the moon so i could see the bird Finally figured, okay, it's now or never. So I slowly, very cautiously, moved this J hook and kind of held it away from the from the limb that he was sitting on. And thankfully, there was nothing obstructing. my pushing it forward and ease that J hook up there and past his leg. And when I thought I was past his leg, I immediately hit the back of his legs and pulled forward and thank the good Lord, <laughs> caught this, caught this gobbler by the legs, and he went to flopping up a storm, and all this kind of stuff, man, I pulled him in, and gathered him up, and, and uh, and I got the heck beat out of me, by golly, by the wings, but I, I carried a toe sack up there, a, a, we used to call it a croaker sack, uh, and, uh, Somehow or another, I have no idea, without getting knocked out of the tree and losing, the, losing hold of the bird, I stuffed old Jubal in this, this toe sack and, and tied it up and cut a hole for his head and, and uh, tied a rope to the end of his legs, generally let him down to the ground got down to the ground and, and got in my pickup and they, they wanted this bird at Buddha at daylight. And it was probably about a three, three and a half, four hour drive. So I just took off, uh, heading to, to Buddha to where they were going to film this segment of, of Lonesome Dove, the, the mini series. And, I get there and hardly anybody's there. There's a couple of wranglers there on, on with horses and, you know, some local cowboys that were kind of added in for the scene kind of thing. And, and so uh, I walked up there, I said, gentlemen, I says, I've got this wild turkey gobbler. They told me y'all needed this morning and they, two of those guys just kind of looked at me and go didn't know for sure what I was talking about and finally one of them said oh yeah that's for that scene yeah I, I know that. yeah we've, we've been told about that he said you need to go see so and so he's at that trailer about now oh, you can see the trailer down there in the bottom of the hill and so I, I drove down there and and uh knocked on the door and and gentleman came forward, and he he introduced himself, and I told him, I said, my name is Larry Wysoon, and I said, I've, I've got a permit from the state of Texas to catch a wild gobbler for you, and and uh, I've got him in the pickup, and I'm more than happy to deliver him to you at this point, and he goes, man, that's fantastic. We we were so hoping this would work out, because we didn't, we didn't know what we were going to do. Didn't want to use the domestic turkey, because all the feathers would be missing, and all that kind of thing, so... So I said, well, I got him. He's the old Jubbles back here in the sack. I said, he said, and I said, he's alive and ready to do whatever you want him to do. And he goes, he's alive? He said, we don't need him to be alive. Well, now that was a fine time to tell me because it had been so much easier to figure out a way with a a minimum or a minimum shotgun thing, just slip in there and, and uh, to take that bird, which I could have done on the permit. It just says, take it, didn't say by which means so anyway we uh i found a way to dispatch old Jubal and and i carried him back there to him and a few minutes later i was there on on the um where they were doing the lonesome Dove segment and got to watch them put together that segment where they send the gentleman out to find a turkey and he comes riding back in with the turkey on on the saddle horn so if ever you see lonesome dove the miniseries which is an absolutely fantastic miniseries if if you wait for that segment where they're out in the prairie of Kansas, and they're looking for a turkey gobbler to eat, and a cowboy comes up riding, you know, carrying a, a turkey gobbler, and that's Old Jubal. That's, that's the bird that I provided for Lonesome Dove miniseries, my, my claim to fame, if you will. Turkey season's here. Gonna be a lot of fun this year. I'm looking forward to, after not having hunted turkeys during the springtime personally, I've guided a few guys and those kind of things. I haven't shot a turkey personally now in about 15 years. Well, this is the year I'm gonna make some changes. I am, I'm getting ready for, for turkey season. I've got my old turkey shotguns that I've used in the past. Got them patterned with uh, some of the Hornady uh, heaviest shot loads, if you will, and and uh, know that I can reach out there and touch them a little bit farther away. And actually, i have got a turkey hunt coming up set up to uh, do with uh, Dave Folsom with Fire Classics and Neil Davies with Hornady a little bit later excuse me, a little bit later in here in the spring. And, and uh, we're gonna be hunting the Hargrove Ranch where I've hunted whitetail and mule deer. And I know that there's a lot of turkeys on that property as well, a lot of hog, a lot of coyotes and bobcats. And we're gonna try to call up a bird or two, and then maybe also try to call up a predator, which is a lot of fun this time of the year as well too. If you're not ready for turkey season, you know, it's it's time to be there. I talked to Rob Keck the other day with Bass Pro and, and about the first part of the middle part of the month. Rob was down in in Florida, and he had taken out 17 different hunters for Osceola, and all 17 had had taken birds, so my hat's off to Rob Kick, like it always is, for all the different things that Rob's been able to accomplish in in the turkey world, and and I must add, too, that Rob this year was uh, awarded the Peter Capstick Award by the Dallas Safari Club at our virtual convention. And I can think of nobody more deserving of of that award than than Rob is. Uh, Absolutely fantastic individual and has done so much for wildlife, not just for turkeys, but uh, for so many different species and habitat. Of course, now involved very much with Mr. Johnny Morris over at, at Bass Pro and there just isn't a better person in the world when it comes to wildlife conservation than Johnny Morris, as far as I'm concerned, or has done more. So. Uh my hat's off to uh, both those gentlemen and I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully catching up with them a little bit later this summer, either up in Springfield or or an event we're having for the DSC Foundation in June and hopefully they'll be able to accommodate or they'll be able to, not accommodate, but maybe we can accommodate them and they'll be able to be our guests at that event. So again, if you're not ready for spring turkey season, you better get there because it's right here on us. It started in several states already. and one thing I can tell you it's going to be fun so get out and if you don't know how to call a turkey ah you know turkeys are just like you and I they've got different voices some of them are different personalities so there's always a good chance if you get out there and make a few yelps even if you don't sound perfect you know that old hen may not be perfect as well too that's trying to track that gobbler so wish you the best of luck I am proud that you're with us here on DSC's campfires and uh We've got a brand new logo and we've got a brand new title name and I look forward to, you. hopefully you'll join me right here at the campfire again next week.
2: DSC's Campfires with Larry Weisoon has also been brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products the scent gods can attract boots for the trails less traveled. Boyd. The finest in hunting gear, Pyramid Air for all things
1: air gun, and Ripcord Rescue Travel Protection.